at the second message in our Advent series, Reconciled by the Christ Child. Last week, we looked at a particularly practical aspect of reconciliation, about how the gospel both calls us and gives us the power to enable us to be reconciled to one another. This week, we're going to look at the root cause. We're going to actually take a step back, define our terms, define what it is that we're talking about, and look at why we need reconciliation to begin with. If you've been around Christian circles for a while, reconciliation is likely not a new term or a new concept to you, but we can't just assume that everybody here is on the same page when hearing the same term just because we are sitting in the same church. To recognize a need to be reconciled means that you have to be starting off with the acknowledgement that you have offended someone. And I find that most of the time you're fighting a pretty uphill battle just trying to get someone to understand the fact that they might have done something just the slightest bit offensive. I want, if you ever want to watch something really good, I don't know that I can recommend it because I don't know everything on the channel, but there is this YouTube channel that is just absolutely hilarious called the Ultra Spiritual Life Series. Anybody ever seen it? They've got a a great one about the paleo diet out there right now, about how the best way to move a species forward is to eat what cavemen ate. But a really, really good series that makes you think about a lot of stuff. No offense to you paleoers out there. But um, they have one of their videos is how to deal with someone's offense by just ratcheting it up and being more offended than they are. It's really, really good. It's hilarious. It's pretty true to life. In the short little film, this man teaches about how the viewer only has to deal with somebody's offense by possibly bringing up the fact that them bringing up their offense is more offensive than whatever the offensive thing that you might have done possibly was. Like, oh, it offends you that I never call you back or check my messages. Have you ever stopped to think about how I feel? You just assuming that just because I have this new iPhone 10 that I know how to use all the contraptions on here and that I know how to check the voicemails? Technology is moving at a rate that I just can't keep up with it anymore. And what you're doing is ageism by even daring to get offended. Or it offends you that all I ever want to do is talk about myself. Did you ever consider the fact that you just taking this time to bring this up is actually deterring me from talking about myself and we're having to talk about you for a moment? You're offended? Well, I'm offended that you're offended. It's a very easy way to deal with somebody's offense. And if you get more incredulous, it gets even easier. Oh, you're offended? Well, I'm really offended that you're offended. I mean, if you can get demonstrative a little bit and throw your voice around, check and mate. Um, People don't like admitting that they may have done something that might be offensive. If you want a little sociological experiment on it, the next time you're in a room where there is some odd, mysterious odor, Take notice of the judgmental way where everybody looks around the room to identify the culprit, right? And they just... (laughs) It's very rare that you see the uh, 
you know, the smell test to see if it might be me. It's never them. That's why you have to have a saying, like whoever smelt it dealt it, right? Because it's never the person. They're always looking around at who to be offended at. When trying to explain that someone might have offended a holy God, we're even more removed from somebody taking responsibility. I've tried to explain to people that their sin is an offense against the holy God, and you get some really out there responses. You get comparing. Why on earth would God be offended at me? It's not like I'm out there killing anybody. I remember going to Thanksgiving dinner one year, and as some of you guys know, I'm friends with David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. And I had a picture of when I went to visit him in prison in my pocket. I was sharing the gospel with my aunt, and she pulled that. It's not like I've ever killed anybody. And I said, but this guy did, and I'm going to be spending eternity with him forever. Uh, his offense has actually been dealt with. And boy, was that offensive. She did the, I will deal with your offense by getting offended that you're offended kind of thing. Or how about the rewriting the rules thing that people did? Well, I would never believe in a God who could get offended over something that I deem to be so small and insignificant. Couldn't he just be more forgiving if he's really God? Couldn't he just be more gracious? Does he really have to take offense? Well, actually, he did send you his son, and all you have to do is believe in him, and your offense will be blotted out. Well, now I'm offended that you think that Jesus is the only way that my offense could be dealt with. And it goes on and on and on. And I'm kind of joking around with you, but the point is, it's hard to explain the need for reconciliation to people, which is the whole purpose of this series, if they don't understand that they've caused an offense that has made reconciliation to be necessary to begin with. So I have four goals in this message to define reconciliation to explain why reconciliation is necessary, to explain who is reconciled, and to explain how Christmas tells the story of the agent of reconciliation who is born into this world to reconcile sinful man to holy God. I plan on covering three out of the four right here by way of introduction, and then I want to use our passage this morning to show why it's necessary and why it had to be the sinless Son of God to accomplish it and the implications of those who have been reconciled by the gospel. So before I get to this passage, let me start with the definition of reconciliation. In English, Merriam-Webster defines our English term for reconciliation is the act of causing two or more people to become friendly again after an argument or disagreement. The Hebrew term where we get the concept for reconciliation from comes from the word shalom. And it means that there has been a break or a breach in peace. And something is done to bring that shalom or that peace or that unity together again. Why it's necessary? Well, that's why we're going to be preaching on our text today. It gets interesting when you start to explain who it is that's reconciled. For reconciliation to take place, you have to have at least one party that needs to be reconciled to another. And there are three main theories on who needed to be reconciled. We have, I know that you guys know all of these theologians, so um, you can go and 
check them up when you leave here. Go look at your William G.T. Shedd books. But William G.T. Shedd takes the view that it was God that was reconciled to man. That God was the one who had to be reconciled because he was the one with whom the offense was against. Charles Hodge uh, takes the view that both man and God are reconciled. God is reconciled to man and man is reconciled to God. William G.T. Shedd takes the view, or A.H. Strong takes the view that it was man who's reconciled to God because his quote is, God has not changed and God has not moved. Well, we're going to go with Hodge's view, which is the view that has been held through most of Orthodox Christianity. And that's the view generally accepted within most Orthodox churches, that is both man and God who are reconciled to one another. Kind of like the song that we sing each Christmas, peace on earth and mercy mild, what? God and sinner reconciled. Um, Lastly, to explain how Christmas tells the story of the agent of reconciliation born into the world, that's something that we're going to hit on some, but that will be the remainder three messages of this series. But first, I want to give a whole message on why reconciliation is necessary. Why do we need reconciliation? Why is this something so central to Christian doctrine? You cannot have the Christian gospel without the doctrine of reconciliation right at the center of it. So in establishing a need, it's always good to go back to the beginning. So if you're going to take a scalpel, it's good to go to the root of the problem to cut it out. So look with me at Genesis 2, starting in verse 15. It says, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then in chapter 3, if you're familiar with the story, they eat the fruit and literally all hell breaks loose. So we're going to get into that in a moment. So we define reconciliation as when one or more parties break the rules of engagement. Well, there's two main parties in the story thus far. Other people enter into the story, but the main transaction that's going on is between the two parties. You have God and you have man. Man was just created in God's image earlier in this chapter. Man was given the privilege to have relationship with God out of all of God's created beings. Man has a place of privileged honor within the garden. God invites man into relationship even with himself. You see that God cares about the rest of his creation, but nowhere else do you see him relating with any of his beings like this, where he invites them into this unique relationship with himself. Man is given almost free access to God and dominion over all of God's creation. If you see the way that they are talking in this passage, it seems like they have a very relational connection, that there is not some barrier between them, that they're talking in a very similar way to the way that you and I would be talking if we were to engage each other after the service because any of the things that caused the barrier to begin with were not there yet. These two have a very unique and special relationship And God lays out the rules of engagement. 
in verse 15, what the relationship will look like and the consequences for not obeying their part. Again, he places them at the center of the garden. He tells them, go, have free reign over the garden in verses 15 and 16. But verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So man is placed right there in the center of paradise. They are given all of paradise to be able to cultivate and to work in. They're even given dominion over this paradise. They're able to freely commune with God in the midst of this paradise. This place was created to be the cosmic playground for them to be able to enjoy. Yes, there was work that was taking place, but this was precursor work. They're not working by the sweat of their brow or through thorns and thistles. There is great enjoyment and pleasure in each of the things that they do. God is there, and we know that in the presence of God there are pleasures forevermore. And they get to be in His unfettered Pleasure And most of all, God gave them himself to enjoy for all of eternity. What a beautiful reality that God creates this new being and as a gift, he says, I'm going to give you my very self for your enjoyment and for your pleasure. And then they're told, you can do just about anything. You have free reign over this place. There's just one thing that I'm going to ask you to stay away from. Stay away from this one tree. If you don't, it will forever put a breach in our relationship and it will undo what you know as normal and a new normal that is just steeped in death will be the result that's going to come out of this. And God lays out the consequences. You know, it's, it's interesting to me <clears throat> that when God says that if you eat of it, you will surely die. They probably had no context for these consequences. Think about it. Death is a result of sin. Uh, I'm not one of those people that believe in theistic evolution that think that we got to Adam and Eve by seeing things born and die and born and die and born and die and born and die and then eventually God breathed his ruach into man and man became this special being. That, that's, that's a bunch of, of hogwash um, if you just take the Bible at a literal reading. Um, so they didn't have a context for death. If that theistic evolution view is true, then all they would have known is death leading up to when they eventually had life. But death was something that was completely foreign to them. They were told, as you eat of this, you will die, yet they had no grid in their brain to understand what it meant to die. Because up until now, they have not seen things die. Death is a result of sin. There had been no sin, so therefore there had been no death. But check this out. We are not so unlike Adam. Unfortunately, most of us do not really learn the consequences until we experience the consequences. Or we hear the consequences and we think that they don't apply to us, even though those same consequences have applied to every single person since the dawn of history. We think that they must be referring to everybody else but us. So therefore, I can eat of the tree. I can fill in the blank and somehow escape the consequences. Since I've gone into ministry, I've heard pastors 
told from every level of my education. I spent 13 years in school. Every year in school, every year I've been in ministry, I've heard pastors told that if you neglect your own soul for the sake of the church, that your soul will shrivel up and you will figuratively die and you will no longer have an identity that is in Christ, your identity will be in what you do for Christ. Yet year after year after year, I see people fall into that same pattern. They were warned that if you neglect taking care of the soul for the sake of the people, that it will not go well for you. Yet people continue to step into it thinking that they will be the exception to it. And I can't tell you how many people that I've sat with my age, even younger, that say, where is the Jesus that I started to follow when I got into this? And I got into this because of intimacy with Christ and because of just pure, joyful worship of Christ. If I have to create one more sermon, if I have to counsel one more person, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. Well, they didn't think the rules applied to them. They thought that they could neglect their soul for the sake of the ministry. Congregations are told if you only think insularly, and you never think about reaching the lost or reaching the next generation. Figuratively, you will die. When people come into your church, it will smell like a funeral march if you are not reaching new people for the kingdom, if you are not reaching next generations, if the only thing that you know how to do as a church is to get old together and bicker, you will figuratively die and the stench of it will be noticeable to anybody who comes and sees and smell. And eventually, you're going to spiritually die. And then eventually, do you know what happens when you put a bunch of old people together and never bring any new young people in? You're just going to actually die. And um, the whole time, sitting and reminiscing about the good old days, isn't that nuts? Just watching the life be removed from the church, but thinking, oh man, let's put on some Bruce Springsteen and talk about the good old days. Let's not do anything to change it. Let's talk about when the Spirit showed up 40 years ago. That was awesome. Let's complain about the youth of today and why they don't want to come here. That'll show them. Then we'll find life. I've sat in premarital courses with people and told them, if you neglect healthy communication... If you make a pattern of allowing the sun to go down on your anger, your marriage will metaphorically die. You will start to feel distance between each other. You will start to feel dead toward that person that you are connecting to. But they think, yeah, I'm just going to bed. It's not worth it. I'm just going to go sleep on the couch for a few days. It's not worth it. Why talk about these things? I'll be the exception to the rule. No, you won't. No, you won't. The Bible tells us that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And that if you spend your days on the acquisition of treasure to spend it upon yourself over time, your heart will die. But I can't tell you how many people I've sat with that are like, Pastor, explain to me why I just don't have that passion for Jesus that I have, that I used to have anymore. Where did that passion go? And I say, tell me about your checkbook. Oh, you spend every penny on yourself. 
Not just every penny on yourself. You spend 110% of your pennies on yourself. And you're shocked that your soul feels shriveled up, even though he says where your treasure is, your heart will be also. You've shown where your treasure is. Why are you so upset that it didn't satisfy? You banked all of the chips going into the middle of the table on cashing in on that treasure. The treasure didn't satisfy you at all any longer. And then you wonder why Christ is no longer the treasure to you that he used to be. He told you. He told you ahead of time. Nobody gets out by being the exception to the rules. And each of these things are things that we could point to Scripture. We could point to real-life examples of. So I've always said that when I get to heaven, I'm so sick of these stinking migraines that I've been blessed with. I'm going to punch at them in the gut. You, you start to feel a little bit sympathetic towards him when you start to realize, like, this dude had one verse to go off of. We've got all of Scripture all of examples, church filled with people who have done it the right way and the wrong way, and we still continue to choose the things that Adam has chosen. But they broke the rules of engagement, and it had consequences. One of them being that as soon as man breaks it, it establishes the need for reconciliation. Ever since this moment, man has needed to be reconciled to God. God told the man, there will be consequences to this disobedience. God would have been well within his rights to say, look, the experiment with human beings has been a colossal failure. And if I were to think about where it's going, it's only going to get worse from here. It's going to cause more pain. He would have been right by choosing not to destroy them. It did choose inevitable pain. God is truth, and he had to be true to his word. He said that sin would result in death, but where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And that's where we see the good news start to enter into this story. But if man was not going to be wiped out, then this breach, the need for reconciliation, had to be dealt with. So I asked the question earlier, who needed to be reconciled? It's obvious that man needed to be reconciled. Right there, as you see in 2.15 through 17, we were the ones that broke the relationship. We were the ones who rebelled against what we were created to do. We were the ones who hid from God and go, went diving in the bushes and sewed a fig leaf bathing suit for ourselves when he made his initial steps towards us. We were the ones who chose the blame game when we were confronted on it. It was the woman you gave me, Lord. It was the job you gave me, Lord. It's the stinking taxes in New Jersey, Lord. It's whatever. We're still doing the whole shell game that we tried with God back in Genesis chapter 3. And the shell game doesn't work because God is not some dope on a subway. He's the holy, infinite God. But God also needed to be reconciled to man. One of the things that our culture has completely lost is its understanding of the complete offensiveness of sin. Look, I'm not a cultural crusader. And what I mean by that is, for the most part, I can't stand messages that are preached just about some moral topic 
from a pulpit. Our job is to preach the entirety of the word of God. Our job is to preach the good news of Jesus Christ about how broken and lost man can be reconciled to God through the gospel. My calling is to preach the gospel, not to be able to find out whatever the latest moral thing is to have a tirade against. That being said, is anybody else sick and tired of being treated like you're judgmental just for calling out the offensiveness of sin for being what it is? How dare you feel? Like some 50-year-old guy shouldn't be able to go into the bathroom with your six-year-old daughter. I'm offended that you're so, so close-minded that you think that 50-year-old man should be uncomfortable. I'm offended that he wants to be in the bathroom with my six-year-old daughter. How dare you be offended by the countless slaughter of unborn children. I'm offended that you feel like you have the right to tell a woman what to do with her body. How dare you be offended that the school system has decided to take it upon itself to indoctrinate your children on human sexuality. I'm offended that you would send a kid to class who believes the Bible rather than our modern sociological failures of an experiment. Mankind made the choice to run as far from God as they could the opposite direction while maintaining a facade of self-righteousness So man had to be reconciled to God, and God had to be reconciled to man. But before this can take place, man has to recognize that there is an offense. And they have to recognize that a holy God has the right to be offended, and therefore creating the need to be reconciled. But first, they need a mediator to bring about that reconciliation. God reconciled this relationship by being the mediator between the two parties. That's the good news of what we call the gospel. Christ came to reconcile man to himself and himself to fallen man. He laid down his life and received our death so that we could lay down our death and receive his life. That's what we see start to take place on Christmas. That's the secret rescue plan that he started to initiate when he sent the reconciler into the world. The one to whom reconciliation was due became the reconciler. The one in whom we owed an offense became an offense in order to take away offense. How awesome is the gospel? As this sermon is coming to an end, not only are we explaining why it's necessary and pointing to the way that it's carried out, But you start to see a little bit of who is going to do it in verse 15 of the next chapter, which we're going to get into more next week. This is after God comes and finds them in the garden after their shame and their sin. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, meaning God crushing the head of Satan, the effects of sin and death you shall bruise his heel, referring to a prophecy of the cross in which Jesus would destroy the works of the enemy from now and forevermore. The Christ child was the seed of the woman who came to crush the head of the servant. This child in a manger is the agent of reconciliation. That's why we sing, what child is this? It's like an exclamation when we sing that on Christmas. What child is this? How amazing that a baby could be born into the world to be able to make right 
all that I have just laid out, which was wrong. The birth of Christ was a declaration of war on sin and death. It was a declaration of war on the chasm by which we need to be crossed to reconcile. It was a declaration against the offense and that he became the offense. It wasn't only a declaration against sin and death. It was a declaration of war against the curse. As you read on in chapter 3, at the end of it, you see that the impact of the curse spread far and wide. We see that the curse literally touched every aspect of life on earth. But the good news is that Jesus came and reversed the curse. And in reversing the curse, he is reversing every aspect of the curse. And he's actively doing it now. And at his second advent, the rest of the curse will be swallowed up in total victory. What I want to drive home to you this morning is how reconciliation touches every single element of the curse, both theologically and individually. Because of the Christ who has come into the world, our broken relationship with God has been completely reconciled through faith in Jesus. And the gospel at work in you is reconciling all that is broken. Jesus is reversing the curse in your life right now. This is part of the glory of living the reconciled life. We're reconciled from the curse. If you read the curses in Genesis 3 and you read about the relational disharmony, the societal disharmony, gender just being flipped upside down, as Christ is at work in you, He is reconciling that curse. When you read the promises of His return and then you see how they relate directly to this curse, you see that there are many promises about His return that are going to just eradicate everything completely when He comes back. Read Isaiah 9.6, another beautiful Christmas promise. Christ came into the world to reconcile us to Himself, but Christ also came into the world to reverse the curse. So I want to focus on some application as I close. I want to ask you a question. And, and I'd like you to just close your eyes so you could think about this. Search your heart because you should have an answer to this question. In what ways is Jesus actively reversing the curse in your life right now? What are areas that you could point to and say, you know what, sin brought this into my life. And because of it, the destructiveness of sin wreaked havoc in my life. But through Jesus, God is reconciling me and reversing the curse actively in my life. There where the curse once stood, now stands a beautiful cross that is reconciling that area of my life. Can you point to an area in your life, or maybe multiple, where God is reversing the curse in and through you right now? So a couple of points of application. First, Christ came into the world to reconcile us. If you are here and you have never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and 
Savior. That is why he came into this earth, so that you might know him, so that you might spend eternity with him. And it doesn't happen by anything that you do. It happens by what Christ has accomplished on your behalf and simply putting faith in the completed work of Jesus that was done on the cross. It was begun in the manger, and then he lived the perfect life all the way to the cross so that he could proclaim that it is finished and be able to pay the price that was intended for you and give you the life that was intended for him. If you've not been reconciled, embrace him today. That's the good news, that God loves you. That's why Christmas is such an exciting time because we have all these beautiful reminders that you see everywhere you go. All of these beautiful things that you see in the stores and you see hanging in your house are supposed to serve as a beautiful reminder that He sent a Savior into the world because God is in love with you. That's the celebration this Christmas. I encourage you who have embraced Him, live reconciled lives. Be reconciled to those with whom you have not reconciliation. Continue to allow the gospel to do a work of reconciliation in you because as Paul calls us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we have now been made agents of reconciliation who no longer regard anybody according to the flesh, but we've been given spiritual eyes to see that we might carry out what Jesus carried out on that first Christmas and be agents of reconciliation. As reconciled people, here are a couple of your benefits. Unfettered access to the Father. Friendship with God to where you are not an object of His wrath, but an object of His friendship. You have sonship and daughtership with God and a spirit who is actively at work within you, crying out, Abba, Father. We have promises such as, if God is for us, Who could be against us? And those were only 10 verses of one chapter of Romans that I took those benefits from. They literally are cover to cover in the Bible. I could have kept going and going and going. As reconciled people, he is reversing the curse. So I ask you, as we close, what are tangible examples of how the Lord Jesus is reversing the curse in your life? God, thank you for sending our Savior Jesus into this world, reversing the curse and granting us life. Thank you for the many colored reminders this time of year of what a beautiful Savior we have been given. For to us, a son has been born, a child has been given, and we thank you for that child whose name is Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.